Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change power and success in the world. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. For without victory there is no survival. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. You can never cross the ocean unless you have the courage to lose sight of the shore. Here's a quote from Christopher Columbus the Italian explorer and navigator who completed four voyages across the Atlantic Ocean, the first European contact with the Americas. I thought this was an appropriate quote for our discussion today, as our guest has had a lifelong love of the sea, is a world-class competitive sailor, an icon of the natural health industry, a business leader who has expanded offshore, a philanthropist, and also an honorary chief in Samoa. Our guest today is Marcus Blackmore AM former Chief Executive Officer and Chairman and current Executive Director of Blackmores Limited. For decades, Marcus has fought hard for the regulation and rights of the naturopaths and natural health products. And under his leadership, Blackmores has grown from a small range of natural remedies to become the number one natural health company in Australia and recognised across the Asia-Pacific region as the most trusted brand in natural health. The Blackmores Group is now a house of seven brands, sold in 17 markets, with more than 50% of sales today coming from Asia. Marcus is an honorary trustee of the Committee for the Economic Development of Australia, an alumnus of Harvard Business School, and an honorary fellow of the Heart Research Institute. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite, world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. I'm your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blendham Partners, the number one research-led executive search and board advisory firm. In today's discussion, we are treated to a number of great stories and very personal insights. We learn about Marcus's commitment to his employees, his generosity through the work of his philanthropic foundation that he runs with his wife, Caroline, his true entrepreneurial spirit, and above all, his passion for life and people. So sit back and enjoy That's the game. Marcus, welcome to the show. Thank you, Greg. Now, look, we start from the very beginning. Was it true when you were a young lad you had ambitions to be a ferry driver? Well, you know, I think in life we set ourselves goals, and that was my goal at the time. Uh, I thought it was admirable. I used to go down to Moreton Bay every weekend. I was a deckhand for Hales Cruises. I worked for my father during the day, and then I went down Moreton Bay on the weekends because uh, I had to get the sea time up to get my ticket. Uh, I had to be 21 years of age before I get a ticket to drive those bigger ferries, and I got it the day after I turned 21. So I achieved my goal. I was pretty happy about that. Now, it was the first job I'd had really outside of Blackmoors, and uh, my first actual job as a skipper was on the Lone Pine Run in Brisbane, 
up to the koala park. And I, I can still remember leaving uh, Hales Cruises and standing there as a young Turk and thinking I knew what everything in the world. And it, it went something like this. Uh, Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. This is the captain speaking. Um, the stone obelisk that you see on the right is where Captain John Oxley landed in 1823. Now, I forget the rest of it. My father used to go to the racehorses and I'd turn the PA onto the onto the Doombin races or something. But, yeah, it was an interesting part of my life. Did that role give you the start that you wanted? Look, I, I did it a bit as a part-time job. But I sort of realised very quickly that uh, ferry drivers didn't make very much money and I thought I was better off working for my old man, which I did. So what was the old man running at that time? What was the sort well, of the it was scale? Well, it was a small business in, uh, you know, there was about seven or eight employees in a, uh, a small building in Montague Road in South Brisbane. So it was a bit of a rough end of town, but it was uh, a small business, a very small business, but we did make uh skincare we we didn't make tablets and capsules but we did make some skincare my father developed a range of skincare really simple stuff uh, because he didn't want these patients to get skin reactions from regular cosmetics or something so so that's what he did that and i that was one of my jobs to we made some ointments and that was one of my jobs to make those things was the actual industry of interest to you the actual naturopath, the healing industry, the skincare products, was that actually of interest to you? We developed that business up until about, I guess, about 15 years ago. And then we we sort of decided we everybody was starting to get into natural skincare. And the company was really known for the supplement business. And I think it was our the skincare business was detracting from our supplement business. From a marketing point of view, it's easy to give 10% off for skincare, but to try and sell supplements where you got regulatory impost was more difficult. So we got we just decided we'd get out of the skincare business. Marcus, I wanted to ask you also, when you, when you were coming through as a young lady, you spent some time in the Australian Army. Uh, you want to talk us through what, what I guess, what one, what the experience was well, and what was the learnings from it all? Because I, I believe you're a bit of a disciplinarian. It was an interesting part of my life and a a part of my life that I look back on fondly. Um, I went to university in Queensland. My father wanted me to do science. I learned very quickly that I'm not very good in life at doing things that I don't like doing. So it's fair to say I was a failure at uh, at university. I even forgot to turn up for the zoology exam one day. My mother was in a tennis club and she came in and she said, oh, Mary down the road, her daughter did zoology exam today. And I said, no, 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 it's on tomorrow, Mum. <laughs> anyway, I missed the zoology exam. I passed physics and I, was a, I quite like physics. Uh, but that was about the only thing I liked. So I, then I sort of decided, well, you know, it's a really good thing that you should do this university education. So I started going at night. The only problem is I, you know, I go to bed early and I get up early and so to try and do university at night I was half asleep all the time so that didn't do any good either but then I got conscripted so I actually looked forward to going in the army because I was in the air cadets at school and uh, um, I went in the army I was uh, they asked me whether I wanted to be an officer I said sure I didn't want to be cannon fodder in (laughs) Vietnam or something so uh, I went in the army 
after a couple of attempts, I got to go to Skyville and became an army officer. So the sort of things I learned in the army, leadership was classic. The army depends on leadership, but it's an authoritative form of leadership. So it depended on how many stripes you've got on your arm, how many pips you've got on your shoulder, uh, and people would fit in with that. Uh, Business was a little different, but not entirely different. You know, if if you wanted to be really effective as an army officer, you needed to have the troops on side. It wasn't just a simple authoritative system. And I actually think army people make uh, uh, very good employees in uh, Civvy Street. I guess the other thing you learn in the army is about camaraderie and uh, and you develop a lot of mates. I've still got mates, you know, here we are 50-odd years later and I've still got mates from that two years in the army so I look back fondly on the army. I subsequently, I've recently, up until a few years ago, I was uh, chairman of the Defence Reserve Support Council, supporting our reservists in Australia. So I've always had a liking for the military and uh, yeah, it, was a, it was just a great part of my life. I learned a lot. Would you like to share some of your experiences in Vietnam? Those of us that went to Vietnam, we sort of didn't make a big feature of it. Um, I certainly didn't. I was on an army ship and I was the gunnery officer, which is probably why I'm deaf today. So uh, um, I did go, I saw a doctor at uh, St. Vincent's about 10 years ago and he turned around to me and he said, "Uh, Mr. Blackmore, he said, for a man your age and your fitness, your hearing's not very good. And I thought, well, what what do you think I'm doing here? Anyway, he... uh, uh, he wanted to do um, X-ray, and I don't like X-rays. Uh, radiation, I think, is a is a, a significant problem in our in our society from a health point of view. So he did a MRI or something, and so my brain was all right. So that wasn't too bad, but my hearing wasn't the best. He said to me, "Did you use any protection?" I said, uh, "Well, um, not on my ears." <laughs> Anyway, experience in Vietnam was, was amazing. Uh, I could tell you the sort of things that happened. The bosun on the ship, he'd done so many trips in army small ships. You did six months at a time. And he'd done a number of trips to Vietnam, so he's well known around the place. And he had an interest in the bar on where we parked the ship and uh, on the other side of the road. And most of those bars were, you know, places people meet and uh, brothels or whatever. So he had an interest in, financial interest in one of these places. And the Viet Cong used to come and get protection money from him. So I thought that was a bit of a hoot. You know, that's our enemy and they're getting protection money from the bosun on the ship. Anyway, a long time ago, a lot of stories. That's probably enough of those. But it was a, it was a wonderful experience. And, uh, you know, I've been back to Vietnam since. Okay, I went down in those tunnels Yep. Uh, what an amazing, amazing military force they were. They had no air power. They had very little armament. We had all that superior armament and whatnot, and we lost the war. Yeah. How does that work? Well, when you go down in those tunnels and see the hardship that they put up with, and uh, it was a different form of fighting. And we were ill-prepared for that war, in my view. 
you know, we had a little jungle training center at uh, Canungra or something, but I don't think that suited our military for what uh, what we saw. When you've got, you know, holes in the ground full of spikes, you fall in there, you're gone. So they, they improvise things. And uh, so it was a wonderful experience from that point of view. Um, they, our, our ship got shot up once uh, in the uh, Basak River on the border of Cambodia. But there's okay. nothing it could do. The Viet Cong could dig a hole in the, in the riverbank. They'd hide in there, wait for you to come up the river, stick their head up and fire rockets at you. Yeah, right. So what could you do? If you fired at them, you, the only thing you could do is put as much firepower into the riverbank and hope that he couldn't get his head up and just get the hell out of there and then maybe call in air power or something. Oh, it was a good experience. As I say, I've still got a lot of friends in the Army. Did it make you change your mind in regards to the broader things in life? Because you know, during that period of time, you must have been, you must have been scared, uncertain. You know, you've got great comrades beside you. But how did it change, the, I guess, your thinking, Marcus, when you come back? Well, my father didn't write me too many letters in his life, but he did write letters to me um, when we were in Vietnam. And he offered me a job. I actually was offered a job with Sealand, the container shipping company, because obviously I had a bit of marine experience. But I chose to go back to my father. I then went into the what was then the Citizens Military Force. I spent a bit of time there, but not much. Uh, it was too onerous a tar the time was. Uh, so I went back to the business and, uh, and I, you know, I'm still there. What did you inherit from your old man? I think the, the most important thing I think inherited from my father was just about caring for people. Um, he was an expert. And what he did, I'll give you an example. He would give the staff a week's pay at Christmas time. And if he had a good year, he'd give them another week's pay in June or something. I changed that to being a percentage of our profits. So I started off at 5% and we ended up over time at 10%. So Blackmore's today takes 10% of our net profits and we divide it up amongst all of the staff. But the interesting thing my father used to say, now, son, you have to give them the bonus well before Christmas so they know how much money they've got to spend on Christmas presents. And I think that's an example of what my father taught me. So I can tell you about four or five years ago, the staff came to me and said, oh, our actual payment date is... uh, only a couple of days before Christmas. And I said, well, that's no good. They won't know how much money to spend, how yeah. much money they'll have to spend on the Christmas presents. Oh, but if we change that, it'll cost us a lot of money to do another payment day. I said, I don't care. It will never change for as long as I'm there. Your old man, um, I think he let you go a couple of times, didn't he? Didn't he fire you three yeah, times? Is that true or not? Yeah, it's very true. He sacked me three times. Well, because my dad was a Gemini, you know, they're good half the time, uh, and I'm an Aries, so we were bound to have a few clashes on the way. I'll tell you a story about we. I lived at home. It was after I'd got out of the Army. You know, I thought I knew everything at that age. I was in my early 20s, and, you, you know, like most kids that age, you think your father doesn't know what he's doing and you're the expert and whatever. Anyway, uh, I remember we lived at Newport and we had a little – had a one bedroom, well, not one bedroom, one bathroom. I had a sister who was alive at that time. So mum and dad and the two kids, we had one bathroom. 
you know, kids have an ensuite these days or they want an ensuite. So I remember standing behind my old man and I'd redesigned, we sold toothpaste in those days and I redesigned a toothpaste tube. And uh, I guess in hindsight it was purple. Um, my dad sort of thought toothpaste should be green and white like Palmolive shave cream or something, you know. Anyway, I just said to him, I was standing behind him and I, I was a bit ticked off. He didn't like my the design of the new toothpaste tube. So I said to him, well, if you're not going to listen to me, you might as well get rid of me. And then I walked away. Five minutes later, he finished his shave, whatever he's doing, he walks out to the kitchen where my mother was and he said he just I still remember the words very vividly well son I've given you everything else in your life all fathers say that don't they I've given you everything else in your life I might as well give you that too and by the way you can get out of the house as well so not only did I lose my job I got chucked out of the house so I was unemployed for about six months I wanted to stay in the industry, but nobody employed me. I, you'll go back to your father and that sort of thing. And I tell you, it's one of those turning points in my life. And I could, I could take you to the spot I was on the side of the street in Crow's Nest. I had a girlfriend at the time worked for Avis. I had a car. I lived in a bedsitter under a house at Mossman. And I'm sitting there standing on the side of the road and I saw a disabled man trying to get across the road. He couldn't get across the road without help. Yeah, right. So I'm sitting there thinking, I'm not doing too bad, am I? I've, you know, I'm not hungry. I've got a car. I've got a girlfriend. And I looked at this poor bugger and it changed my life. I got a job the next day, the very next day. So, you know, I still get emotional talking about it. It's just amazing what happened. And uh, I got it. I got it. I got a job as a medical detailer at Johnson & Johnson selling contraceptives. And uh, that was an interesting part of my life as well. So uh, interesting when you call on doctors. You had to be very careful about calling on Catholic doctors. They chuck you out of the surgery pretty quickly. Anyway, it was a great, it was a great time. I learned a lot about the pharma industry. They're very disciplined and they teach their people, salespeople particularly, really well. They're my biggest competitor. Our biggest competitors, not the Swiss and those sort of people, our biggest competitor are the pharmaceutical companies. They offer health solutions. So do we. We just offer natural health solutions. That's the difference. So you obviously care about people, Marcus. As you said, you had that moment which changed your life. When did you go back and sit down with your father and say, Dad, I want to come back in? And if I come back in, you must oh, have had I, a different vision to your father. I didn't tell my dad I wanted to come back. He told me I could come back. You know, that's the difference. So, uh, but I was happy. I, you know, I was, I was keen to go back. Um, I did that. We bought, uh, we started buying health food stores. And my job was to call on these stores every week and check the banking. And we had six stores spread around, mainly the North Shore of Sydney. I think it was a disaster. I, I wasn't. You know, retailing requires a certain a certain skill, and uh, and I don't think I had it. But it was an interesting exercise. Uh, I can tell you, one of the best retailers in the world. Always have a view. Hang round with people you think are smarter than you. So I met a guy. His name was David Shakirian, and he owned a business called GNC, which is a worldwide business now. At the time, David had 1,200 health food stores. 
Nobody's ever owned 1,200 health food stores and nobody ever will. So I made it my business to meet this guy, which I met him in England at a trade show. And we spent, we spent a bit of time together, went to a local Rotary meeting. We became really good friends. So when I went to the States to trade show, I'd often stay with him. And I tell you what he did. We'd go out on the road, we'd sit in a shopping center, he'd sit on the bench and he'd send me into the GNC store. And I had to come back and report to him what was the interaction. So I come back and I'd say, he said, what happened? I said, nothing, David. He said, they didn't offer you our new flavored vitamin C tablets. I said, no, nothing. So he was straight on the phone. Who's the area manager here? And he'd get into them and they didn't like him. The industry didn't like him in the States because he was one of the early discounters. Then I said to him one day, David, I ran the industry association in Australia at the time. I said, I want you to come to Australia and tell our people, our retailers, how to make a lot of money. He said, I'd love to. I can tell you, he flew to Australia. Our annual trade show was in Melbourne. He flew in one morning. He delivered an address. He flew out the next morning, went home because his wife wasn't well or something. Never charged me a cent. Gave the best lecture these retailers ever heard. And I remember one thing. He said, if I was going to start in the health food industry tomorrow, I'd find the biggest GNC store, which weren't in Australia at the time, I'd find the biggest GNC store and I'd open up opposite. And he said, while they're in there doing the paperwork, I'll be talking to the customers. And I think that's, you know, that's the essence of retailing. He was so good. It's also the essence of being a founder, isn't it? And the founder's mentality? Yeah, that's an interesting exercise being that my father was the real founder, but it was a very small business in those days. So I get labeled as the founder a little bit. And it's an interesting exercise uh, because if the founder's half smart, as the business grows, they'll realize that they, they can't do everything. And it, it, you've got to be a little bit humble if you want to be an entrepreneur at times. So then you go and get the professional managers. And they're trained to do those things a hell of a lot better than you are. You know, you want a university dropout or something. You know, anyway, so you go and employ people with wonderful university degrees to manage the business. And they generally do a better job than what you do. But there's a little difference there that I think is, is obvious a lot of the time. They don't have the same passion. They probably haven't got the same skin in the game either. But they don't have the same passion. They particularly don't have the same passion for customers. They're good at it. They do marketing surveys and reviews and tell you how, you know, customer-centric we are. But there's nothing. You know what I used to do? If I got a customer complaint, I'd sit back at work at night and I'd ring them. I'd get the phone book out or I'd ring whoever, a telecom or something in those days, have you got a Mr. Brown in Udnadatta or wherever the hell it was, you know? And more often than I could find them and I'd ring them up. And you know what happened? The complaint went straight out the door. Oh, Mr. Blackmore, you're ringing me. I said, you've sent me a letter. You're not happy with our product. I want to talk to you about it. I really appreciate the time you've taken to write to us. And it completely changes the game. You know what you end up with like that? A customer for life. That's the game. It is the game, isn't it? Ultimately, that is the game. Get the repeat customer over and over, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I'll give you another story. 
I'm very passionate about continuing education in life. I had a wonderful friend, the Deputy Dean of Harvard Business School, and I remember him saying to the, our class, and I've been to Harvard many times, I might have failed university, but I'm an alumnus of Harvard Business School now because I've been there so many times, but I really enjoyed it. His name was Len Schlesinger. He's still at Harvard, and he was responsible for customer service and, and that sort of thing. At one stage, he left there and ran a chain of restaurants, and he wanted to know why people came back the second and third time in that restaurant. Yep. And the answer was had nothing to do with the quality of the food. Those things are important, of course. The service was important, the location. The number one priority is whether the matra d knew your name when you walked into the restaurant. And when I think about my experiences, you know, I go to a little restaurant in, uh, and it's called Amici's Newport. Yep. I mean, you can walk up all these stairs, you're buggered by the time you get to the top of the stairs. The decor in the place is average. The food's fantastic. Walk in the door. Hello, Mr. Blackmore, how are you? And I had a wonderful friend, George Safarian. Used to be the maitre d' at the Coachman restaurant. Oh, yeah, yeah. Going back a few years. Down the road in Redfern. Unbelievable. Walk into the restaurant. Mr. Blackmore, I am so pleased to see you. I love going back to that guy's restaurant. He had other restaurants later on. So that, you know, it's that personal thing, I suppose. And I think my my whole life in the business is about looking after staff. You know, boards sit down there worried about shareholders. That's garbage. Worry about your staff and the shareholders will be looked after. Was that your vision? Was your vision much different to your father's when you when you basically or when you got the time markers to I, I make your imprint? We we're a little my my interest was more the commercial business. Yes. As we called it Blackmore's Laboratories. Yep. My father's stronger interest was the profession, naturopathy. Yes. So he started the first naturopathic and chiropractic colleges in Australia, in Queensland. It was really good for the pair of us. So we fit, we worked well together. I said to him, the, the profession was full of politics. Dad, I don't want to be involved in that. I'll run the health food stores and those sort of things. So it worked pretty well. And when you grew, Marcus, you had to go and hire people. What are you looking for when you're starting to hire people? As you say, not everybody has that passion. Not everybody has the skin in the game. How do you attract high-quality people to take your business to where you want to get to? Um, I'd love to think that all our, all our marketing and salespeople were naturopaths. That'll give them a bit of the passion that I'm looking for. Um, I don't know. I don't think I'm real good at all that. That's why, that's why I employ people like you to pick the staff for us. But... Uh, I don't know. I haven't got a simple answer for that. I, I really don't think I'm the best at judging people. Just sit down with them for an hour. You know, everybody's different. And I don't know why. You know, when you meet somebody for the first time, you immediately form an impression. I look at you two blokes when I walk in here and I think, oh, he's not a bad bloke. I'm not sure about him. But, you know, you, don't, you form an impression. Now, that impression may change. Now, I'm not sure why you form the impression. And it might have something to do with uh, star signs or something or, you know, there's a whole host of things that we really don't understand that give you that first impression. Now, you may change it within five minutes. It might be biorhythms or something. I don't know. I, you know, one of you, uh, Andrew Banks is a wonderful friend of mine. 
And I was concerned that we weren't employing the right people. And Banksy had a, a really lovely woman that looked after our account. And I said to her, you know, I'm struggling a bit. We've, we've made a few dud hires here. How do we, how can we? She said, oh, what do you call that thing, Myers-Briggs? Oh, yeah, yep. And, and I said, all right, well, why don't you do it on me and then I'll tell you whether it works or not. That was, that was a bit in your face, I suppose, for her, but it actually typed me really well. So then I said to her, you know, what you need to do is read Linda Goodman's star signs because if you can take the Myers-Briggs thing and then do the star signs, you improve significantly your understanding of that individual. Now, I'm not talking about the rubbish you read in women's magazines and the newspaper. Isn't it fascinating that just about every newspaper's got star signs in it? And it's rubbish most of the time. But if you get a really good astrologer and they know the hour you're born, whether it's Indian astrology, Chinese astrology, they can really type you. Anyway, a bit of nonsense. But just on that, you, you made a really interesting point a few minutes back about your focus on getting the people happy. Do you think uh, corporate Australia, have we lost sight of that compared to governance, share price, no. dividend returns? Well, well Marcus, you want to give us a bit of insight how you do run your business in that regard? There's no simple answer. Okay. I, uh, I was at Harvard Business School. I'll give, you an, uh, I'll give you a little story. I was at Harvard Business School. And I, I met a guy there, had an advertising agency in New York. And he said to me, because I had a beautiful, wonderful Swiss engineer work for me, and he said, Marcus, there's no new ideas in the world. They're just rehashed. There's actually a bit of truth in that. Anyway, so I talked to this guy. He said, I'll tell you what I want you to do when you go home, Marcus. Talk to the people in your company and ask them what date they joined the business. So... I went back there, and to my amazement, just about everybody knew the exact date they started working for Blackmores. Now, what's the message? The message was that was one of the most important days of their lives. And you know what? The women would probably even know what dress they wore that day. It was so important. They wanted to create a good image. So I thought, well, what do we do? Well, what we do is we give people a bottle of champagne when they start with Blackmores, for making a good decision and joining the company. We give them a bottle of champagne on their anniversary and they get a little note, thank you for another year at Blackmore's or something like that. And then we do the usual thing, give them a bottle of champagne on their birthday. The end result, we, we, we use a lot of bottles of champagne. <laughs> but I think so. It, it's the sort of thing, you know, it's, it's, it is about caring for people. People, isn't it? And... Once you demonstrate respect for people, irrespective of what job they do in the company. I'll give you another story. Uh, this guy, he was an uh, autistic, disabled, whatever he was. Uh, he's still at Blackmore's after 20 years. He empties the rubbish bins for us. And they came to me and said, oh, we've got this young man and, you know, we, we want to do the right community thing. We'd like to employ him. I said, look... We're not a charity of itself. I, you know, I'm, I, it doesn't rest comfortably with me. And they said, I oh, know it won't be a problem because he'll have a carer with him all the time. Well, I said, oh, okay, well, let's give it a go. So the carer lasted about a week. And uh, 
that young man, well, he's not that young anymore, he's still with us. But he taught me more about communication than I think anybody's done because he couldn't talk to you. He didn't have the ability to communicate with you, but he knew what was going on. So he'd walk in the office to see my assistant and he'd start pointing at my office. She said, no, he's not in today or something, you know, so you you worked out. And then he'd have he'd have mates in the business and they'd look after him, but, you know, at lunchtime and whatever. He's just a wonderful guy. Then he turned around, they said to me, oh, we've got a problem with Duncan. I said, what's the problem? He's wagging work. Oh, get Duncan, come and see me. So Duncan comes, sits down, and I, and I had this discussion with him. One way, dis- now listen, Duncan, your job is really important. We have to empty those bins every day, otherwise it's going to flow all over the place. And Duncan, let me tell you, if you keep wagging, and if you don't want the job, you tell us. And I said, because we'll get somebody else to do the job if you don't want to do it. He never wagged it again. Amazing. Never wagged it again. We made a big fuss of him, one annual thing about just how to understand how people communicate. And he had his ways and means. He had a little typewriter thing. And it, I can tell you, I'm, he must have been there. He's, I reckon it's 20 years and Duncan's still there. What a wonderful lesson we learned from him. But you, so you set that tone, Marcus. Is that is that where it's all come from? Because there must be a feel if we, if we walked into your head office. What are, what are we going to feel? Um, I'd like to feel when you walked in there, the first thing you'll see at the reception, when we built that place, I wanted to make sure the gymnasium and the, the, uh, the lap pool that you could see them from the reception. So that was the message how we look after staff. We've got a wonderful gymnasium. We've got a lap pool. You know, we have barbecue lunches. There's no one thing. It's all a lot of little things. And it's a sense of saying to people without being too demonstrable that you care about them. And, you know, you get paid back in spades. Happy people, there's all the evidence in the world that happy people are the most productive people. And we've fallen off the cliff a little bit in the last two years, Blackmore's has. It nearly destroyed me, I can tell you. And it was, we 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 were foolishly put on, I don't know, 120 people at ne- nearly two years ago now, mm-hmm. and our profit dropped 25%. Yeah, right. It was a hell of a mistake. So then we had to get rid of some people. And we did it over a year, and it was just, it was a mess. Death by a thousand and it, cuts. And it's one of the reasons why the last two years, Blackmore's performance has been lacklustre. And I said in the media, and I repeat it here, we had a leadership vacuum in the place. We've now got a new chief executive, a new managing director of Australia and New Zealand, a new chief financial officer, a new marketing director, a new China manager, a new person to run the rest of Asia. So basically at Blackmore's at the moment, a new public relations manager. We've got the whole senior team in the place is virtually new. And, you know, we've had a couple of departures from the board that I best not talk about because they, they didn't like me a lot, but that's another story. And uh, uh, we're about to get ourselves a new chairman and uh, so uh, the leadership vacuum has been fixed. My current chief executive has been there seven months. 
is an outstanding individual and has surrounded himself with some extremely talented people. You know, one of the failures we do in business, we put up with bad behaviour at times. They haven't been caught with their hand in the bicky tin. They've got a wife and kids at home. And it's not until you suddenly make a decision that they should go and you employ somebody and you suddenly realize, why didn't I do that six months ago? So I don't know. It's one of one of the failures of, of business. But I've sacked three people in my life, three. And I won't tell you why, but uh, last year we put off like 60 people and it hurt me like hell. I can't tell you. So hopefully we're past all that. But look after people. You know, I have this. People say to me, Marcus, you, you've made a lot of money. How did you make your money? Yeah. I said, uh, I'm buggered if I know. I just got all these people working for me. I don't pack the pills. They do all the work. And uh, But I have an absolute belief that if you look after people, 99.9% of the time they'll look after you. And that's why... I've become a wealthy person. I'm I'm lazy. I'm not, you know, I'm not that good. Well, what did you set out to achieve, Marcus? I consistently say that if wealth creation is the only reason for being in business, the world be a poorer place. I wanted to grow the business. I had an ambition. I made busts of my father with Alex Koloski, a wonderful sculptor. And I made these busts, and my plan was to have a bust in all of these offices around the world. So some 30-odd years ago, I started realising that, you know, Australia's only got so many mouths you can stick pills in. I started in Asia. I started in Singapore first, then went to Malaysia, Thailand, and then in later years, Indonesia. Today, we're the number one brand in Thailand got 280 people work for an amazing woman that runs that business. We've got 140 people or something like that. We're the number one brand in Malaysia. We're the number one brand in Singapore. We've got a joint venture in uh, Indonesia, and that's growing at like 50%. We've got 300 product advisors calling on pharmacies in Indonesia. And all of that started 30-odd years ago. We're in China. That's more recent. And thank heavens for that Asian business. Our domestic business is flat. It's up and down. One month good and one month not so good. But our business in Asia is fantastic. Really serious growth in Asia. And the funny thing is, Alistair, when he came into the company, has a lot of international experience. And he said to me one day, Marcus, he said only a relatively small proportion of the company's resources are in Asia. Yet we all believe our future will be in Asia just for the sheer numbers. Yep. Then I think, hang on, that, that sounds pretty good. But how come we're going so well in Asia and not going so well in Australia at the moment, you know? But he's got a focus to, to reignite Australia, and I believe we can. So You must have been one of those first persons, Marcus, because not every company goes into Asia. A lot of them give you every reason why they won't be successful offshore. What do you think made Blackmore so successful or thus far so successful oh, look, offshore? I get asked that question many times. I've distilled it into what I call the three Ps, people, product, and passion. If you haven't got the right people engaged in the right job and appropriately rewarded, you'll be behind the eight ball. But you've got to have the right product. 
If you're trying to sell 100 milligram vitamin C these days, like we used to 30 years ago, you won't be in the game. Unless you're selling 1,000 milligrams now or whatever, you that's where the markets move. So you've got to have the right product, obviously. And then you've got to have passion. And and I've tried to employ, I'd love to think that everybody work at Blackmore's was a naturopath. Now that's a bit fanciful, so that's not going to happen. But we spend quite a lot of time educating our people about natural health. And, you know, my father set the scene for that sort of behaviour. And I think if you get the three Ps right, just about everything else will sort itself out. That's my view. What you're saying, Marcus, it's not just one thing, it's several things. Can you give us some examples? Yeah, look, we've talked about the champagne and we've talked about profit share. The other thing we did years ago, we're one of the first companies in Australia to introduce superannuation on the factory floor. I sat down with those people and I said, from my view, my point of view, I don't think the, the government's of this country are going to be able to support you in the style that you've enjoyed while you're working. The pension won't be big enough. You might still get the pension, but it won't be big enough. You need to do some enforced saving. And I think we can do that with superannuation. And they all agreed. They all agreed. I can tell you my uh, company secretary been with me nearly 25 years. You know what she does? Every time she gets a bonus, and we're fairly liberal with bonuses, every time she gets a bonus, she goes and buys Blackmore's shares. She's a major shareholder and seriously wealthy now. Exciting. I love to hear those stories from my staff. Oh, Marcus, I sold a few shares to buy a car. Fantastic. Fantastic. Now, the other thing we did is, particularly for women, it's about security. That's what you need to understand. So what we did is we did life insurance and salary continuance plans for all our staff. So they got really sick. They could spend their time getting healthy. They didn't have to worry. We would insure them. So they'd get, I don't know what it was, like two-thirds of their salary for so many months, and then if they were really disabled or whatever, they, they, they'd, get, they'd be covered for life. And I think it's just that some of those little things, not one of itself is, is the answer. You've just, you've just got to think about how people, how people live their lives and what role the company can play in their lives. And the biggest thing, of course, for women is security. Marcus, does that also translate into health insurance? Well, it, it, to a certain extent, we, we do whole of life insurance and we do salary continuance plans so that if they do get sick, you know, they, they, they'll know. I had a, a wonderful woman and a son. Were, I love it when mum and dad both work for the business and uh, or mum and son rather. And, and mum got sick and had cancer, but they didn't have to worry. She was worried that she wouldn't be able to pay the mortgage. And because we got salary continuance, she, she got a great deal of comfort. Her son was so appreciative of what we'd done for, for his mother. So I think, you know, simple, just going to understand what turns people on. And they, you know, and some of the time, you know, people down on the factory floor, they're not exposed to all the things like the more senior people in the place. you just got to listen to people. It's not hard. You know, I, when I go in the place, I have lunch in the staff lounge. I call it the staff lounge. I mean, it's just it's a canteen with some really nice natural foods and stuff. But I have lunch in there every day and I sit down. It's the best source of information about people that you can possibly get. They'll tell you. I'll tell you what's wrong with the business and whatever, you know. 
How are you finding business during COVID-19? Well, I've been sitting at home. Uh, my darling stepdaughter was living over in this part of the world, actually, and I call this the Kowloon side because you've got to go under the harbour to get here. But uh, so it was a long trip every day for us. She moved out of home, decided she'd go and live in Rose Bay with some people, and then, then she said one of the others in the flat they were in moved out. She couldn't afford the rent. She rings up and says to her mother, I'm coming home. So she came home just before the COVID thing. She didn't tell us she was also bringing the boyfriend. But uh, So now we've got two extra tenants in the place. Then I've got another guy there who's crew off my boat that I've had in Europe. So he's here and can't get out of the country. So it's actually been pretty neat. And two of them are really good cooks. So it's been like sitting in a restaurant every night. Anyway, look, I, you know, I jest about that. But you know what I think? The, one of the failures of management, we don't trust people. We don't trust our staff. And all of a sudden, they all have to work from home. We didn't really want them to work from home. Oh, no. They need that personal interaction. Maybe you can have one day at home. We didn't trust them to work at home. I was talking to one of our senior managers last week. She said, you know, Marcus, I've been working harder at home than I do at work. I think the working from home thing is, is a realisation that we can trust people to work from home. And yet it hasn't affected us that much. Our factory's still going. We're manufacturing, distributing and doing all that. But all the office, office staff have been working from home. So I think that's a good thing. But, you know, all of a sudden the air's cleaner, the water's cleaner. So maybe all those left-wing loonies, who greenies and whatnot, you know, maybe we got a better appreciation of some of those people. I'm actually a supporter of Greenpeace at times. You know, they're a bit out there. I think one of the realities in life is if you just go about your work every day and your life every day and, you know, go to school and get married and bring up the kids, nobody takes any notice of you. You actually got to be a little bit out there for people to take notice of you. And I think some of the things that Greenpeace did, I've supported that stuff going on in uh, the Great Australian Bite about, you know, the uh, in the whale areas and whatnot. So I think they do some good things. But now I think we've got a far greater appreciation of what the environment could be like if we didn't have so many cars on the road or we had electric cars or something. And uh, so I think there's some really good things come out of it. And, of course, one of the problems, I think, which you learn in the military, the highest form of discipline is self-discipline. If our kids don't have the self-discipline, then they're they're going to respond more to peer pressure. So they're sitting in a group and they're all smoking dope and you're the odd one out. You say, oh, bugger it, I'll get into it, you know. And that might lead to all sorts of things, you know. So uh, I think it's that self-discipline. And and when the good Lord put us on the planet, mum had responsibility for the family's health. And I think the wives, funnily enough, right, the blokes are all out there and everything, but I th- actually think the women have a greater role to play in the upbringing of those children. But we now live in a world, my mother didn't have to work, now mu- we want a house. So mum has to go to work as well. Yep. So what do we do? We abrogate that responsibility for discipline to the school teachers. So what do we do these days? The kids are bashing up the school teachers. Yep. Never happened in my day, of course. 
you know, I went to school, every master had a cane, you did the wrong thing, whack. That's right. It's a different world. And I, I think that's the essence of what we're missing in our society. Now, some countries say, oh, we will conscript everybody at a certain age. We'll teach them a bit of discipline. I'm not sure that's the answer. You know, the military needs good disciplined people. It's the military's not there to try and sort out community problems or whatever. Anyway, it's just my view. I may be wrong. During this period of crisis, you're catching up with your team, as you say, via Zoom or via some telecommunications. Are the guys coming up with new ideas you haven't thought about before? Well, you know, the best idea is webinars. Now, I'm a former director of CEDA, the Committee for the Economic Development of Australia. They have every year a seminar in Canberra and they have it in a hotel. This year it was all online. Mm-hmm. They've never had in the history of CEDA the sort of attendance they got online. You know, it's tenfold sort of thing. So now we're starting to see a whole new mechanism of communication. Yeah. And I think it's fantastic. And I guess maybe that's what we're doing here today. Speaking of crisis, what other ramifications are you seeing? I think we're in for a tough time. And we've got JobKeeper going on now. Yep. But it's a, it's a bit of a Band-Aid. It can't go on forever. It's costing the country a fortune. It's, it's almost like a crutch for the time being. And I'm just a bit concerned when that JobKeeper, I mean, it keeps people out of the dull queue, I guess. Yep. But once that goes, I think that'll be a fairly telling time for the country. And I think later on this year, we depends what sort of business you're in. Mm-hmm. You know, the business to be in at the moment is the car business or the boat business. They cannot get enough cars. You know, I've, I've got a couple of wonderful friends in the car business, never been so good. Everybody's buying cars at the moment. And boats, I've got another wonderful friend who's a boat. I'm, I'm into boats. That's right. In a big way. So this, this guy says, if I get a boat that's half good, it's sold in a week. He said, I cannot get stock. I've got another wonderful friend who's built two or three boats for me, more, three or four boats. And he's got an export business to the US. He sold eight boats in three weeks, some of them three million bucks each. He said, what's happened in the US? Because everybody's living at home, they can't get out. Yeah. But they can go on their boat. And they can't travel, so they've got a bag of money sitting in there. They haven't had the skiing holiday. We'll go and buy a new boat or buy a new car. One of my mates came to me yesterday. He said, I've treated myself to a new car. I said, what did you buy? He said, bought a Ferrari, a million bucks. I mean, business must be going pretty well. He's the exception. Anyway, I won't tell you it is. Fair enough. The big concern for you, Marcus, is that the government has put out a crutch and that's going to assist people. But then we're going, to, we're going to be at a point when they're going to pull that away. How are we going to get back up on our own feet? People a lot smarter than me would tell you you need some industrial relations reform in Australia. I think that's, that's part of it. I think there's an opportunity for us. We've been through one of the worst times since the Great Depression. And I think it's a, it's a time for introspection on whatever we've been doing in the past may not be right for the future. And I think we as a company have that sort of mentality around the place. Um, You know, we've got to do something about retail. It's not good enough to say that 
retail's falling over because uh, because of online. No, retail's falling over because online is probably doing a better job with the customer than what you did. Now, I'll tell you, I, I shouldn't tell you, but I will. I went on Blackmore's online mm-hmm. and I had a bit of a problem with the product, not not the nature of the product, but with the order or something. So I, I uh, sent him an email and said, I think there's something wrong here. Oh, I got a response. Um, because of COVID-19, we've been very busy. We hope to get back to you in three days. I said, you've got to be kidding, haven't you? You know, I would have rang up the managing director of Australia, said, you know, if we want to be in the online business, we've got to do a better job. She said, no, Marcus, I know all about it. I'm across it. So we blamed Alibaba and Jack Ma. I went to Alibaba a few years ago. Oh, yeah? About four, four or five years ago. I don't know what the number is now, but they were doing 175,000 financial transactions per second. Let me repeat that. 175,000 financial transactions per second. And then I say to myself, now, what sort of business are Alibaba in? They actually make, you know, they make things or buy things and they sell them to people. But that's what Blackmore's does. Mm. How come they're so much smarter than we are? You know, the, the essence of them is they have platforms and communities surrounding those platforms. Now, we do a little bit of that through our bioceuticals business. Yep. We do podcasts. Yep. Podcast fit. We've got 70,000 practitioners that are on it to use the old parlance on a mailing list. It's yep. not a mailing list. Yep. Who listen to that? They don't all listen at the one time. So that's a community surrounding that business. Yep. What does Jack Ma do? When we're criticizing him for just selling all this stuff online, what does he? He goes and buys retail shops. And if you talk to Jack, why'd you do that? He said, I believe with technology, I can have a retail shop and deliver a better customer experience. And that's what he's done. I went to one of his, uh, the Alibaba supermarkets in China a year or so ago, Humra or something, a, a sort of small supermarket. I have never seen a better display of seafood anywhere in my life. You went in there. The seafood was all live, the crabs, the lobsters, the prawns or something. They gave you a net. So you pull the the crabs out or something and then you walked not 10 yards away and gave it to a bloke and he cooked it on the spot for you. And then if you wanted to deliver it at home, it went through a conveyor, went outside the building and there's a couple of blokes sitting outside on a push bike and they deliver it. If you're within, I don't know, I I don't remember the numbers, five kilometres, they guarantee to have it in your house in 30 minutes. You know, I said, that's what customer service is all about. He's using technology to deliver that that customer service. So I think the message is for all the, you know, we've got some of our major retailers have fallen over and they will always survive. People always want to walk into a shop and see what they're, see what they're buying. But we've really got to change our thinking and how... Customers want experiences these days and they want it to be a really good experience and that's what Jack Mars delivered. You talk about the community. How important is the role of Blackmore's in its community? 
Well, the community I'm talking about is the virtual community that, you know, Amazon have got millions of people in their community yep. as distinct from the community where you live. And I think that's more to your question. Yes. I think we have a responsibility um, to be charitable within the community from whence we derive a large part of our labour. So Blackmore sponsors Bilgola Surf Club. I go down there every morning. I think we've got a, we should have a, I think we've got a responsibility to support initiatives like that. And, you know, and the surf lifesaving movement is, you know, it's a wonderful experience for young people. I was a very strong supporter of Ted Knopf's when he ran the, the Wayside Chapel. And uh, he's subsequently, unfortunately, had a stroke. His family still run a part of that sort of thing. But there's others have taken it up, like Bill Cruz was sort of like Ted's lieutenant. And he runs the Exodus Foundation. And I've been a long-time supporter of Bill. He's just an amazing individual. He does a radio program on Sunday nights or something. Blackmore's have bought him a van so that he can deliver hot food to the homeless people sitting around the city. You know, some of these people are homeless for no fault of their own. And I think we all have a responsibility to try and care for people less fortunate than ourselves. You know, I'm just, in my life, I've just been terribly lucky. The environment I've lived, the family I've lived, but not everybody has that sort of luck. So I think those of us that have had a bit of luck need to share it a bit. And it's the same in the business. Yep. You know, we take 10% of the profit and we divide it up amongst all the staff. So it's to share how well the company's going. I can tell you about three years ago. And what we do, we have a, we have a, a session after the end of the year. Yep. All the staff get together. The chief financial officer gets up there and say, that's our sales. That's our cost of goods. That's how much money we've made. You get 10% of that. That's uh, how many days of extra pay you get. Now, we had this whole Daigo thing, you know, people shipping our product to China. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. In that one year, we made $100 million after-tax profit, which is twice what we'd done ever before. Our staff got 44 days of extra pay, and they're working days, nine weeks or something. Yeah. Unbelievable. A very exciting day, I've got to tell you, Blackmore's that day. What's in store going forward, Marcus? Like you said earlier, you've got the new chief exec, you brought on for new staff, you've got global markets, and you're moving forward in that space. What should we be reading about if we're going to talk about well, look, I think Blackmore's? The, I think we're starting to realise our longer-term ambition to grow the business globally. Okay. And, uh, and I believe Alistair Symington, I'm, I'm excited about him and the company. I think he'll be crucial to doing that. We're basically more in Asia. I, I had a flirt with the US at one stage, selling skincare products. Uh, but at that time, unfortunately, we're dictated a lot as a public company by what the market thinks. And at that time, anybody with an exposure to the US got marked down. And my board at the time said, we better pull out of the US. And we, we'd only been there a year or two. We had a million bucks worth of sales. Anyway, we pulled out. If it had been my own business, I wouldn't have pulled out. But anyway, I also had a little business in the UK. Well, I think we, we're on the verge. We're about to start in India uh, next year. We've done quite a bit of homework there. 
It'll be like our entry into Indonesia. It might take three or four years to make a profit, but, you know, our, our business in Indonesia with a joint venture partner and we're looking for a partnership in China, yep. uh, I think in some of those more difficult markets, you need to partner with people who really understand the market. You know, in the English-speaking places, we it's easy, but not so easy when you're in, you know, China or Indonesia or even India or whatever. So anyway, we'll see how we go. Where does the products get manufactured? We've never actually manufactured tablets and capsules until the last couple of years. Yeah. We, there was plenty of capacity around the world and I think we needed to focus on building the business and not have the distraction of trying to make tablets and capsules. Um, we changed that view a couple of years ago and we bought a manufacturing plant uh, from an American company that no longer wanted a presence in Australia. Okay. So we have a manufacturing plant at Brayside in Melbourne that makes tablets and capsules. There's some 280 people work there. And I think in the, the supply chain issues, particularly in COVID-19, have become so much more important. And we felt we needed, not it was before COVID, of course, we needed to have greater understanding of our supply chain uh, than what we had in the past. We'd send audit teams around the world, but I think we need to have even a greater presence in our supply chain. So, so that's why we did it. Uh, to be honest, we stuffed it up. Oh, really? Uh, we, we didn't do our due diligence well enough. We had a, a period of some 18 months where the pharmaceutical company would take out the drug manufacturing that they wanted to keep and yeah, we right. didn't want anyway, yep. and we would move more and more of our product. But we didn't really have good visibility over costs and the costs escalated significantly in that 18 months. And uh, we didn't do our due diligence. We learned a pretty tough lesson. And it's one of the reasons why the performance of the company hasn't been as, as good as we'd hoped in the last year or two. But that'll change. We, we'll get through that. Your distribution model works well? I had an American friend of mine once, great entrepreneur. He said, he said to me, what, what do you think's your best asset? And I said, oh, our products work or quality or something. I went in like everybody else does. I said, well, what do you think? He said, I think it's your distribution. You know, we manage our own distribution. We deal direct with pharmacies. We deal direct overseas. And we have a more, shall we say, a more intimate relationship with our customer than we would if we just went through wholesalers. So we're focused on that. We have a, a distribution centre in the western suburbs of Sydney, got some very capable people running that business. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, we have absolute control over our supply chain. I think it's an important thing for us. Marcus, if you had your time, if you rolled it back a number of years, when you're taking over the reins, would you change the model to private versus public? A lot of people ask me, should I go public? I tell them, no way. I said, your backside's exposed for a start. Uh, you may not like that. And the problem for Blackmore's being a public company, uh, when, when we went public in 82 or 83, I remember my lawyers saying to me, Marcus, you would not do this unless you really believed you were going to grow the business rapidly. Well, because I was a young Turk, I took over from my father at 28. Of course I was going to grow the business. So we went public. 
Um, but you got to remember in those days it wasn't easy to borrow money to capital to grow your business. And uh, so we we decided to go public. But these days it's a lot easier to get capital than it was then. So I think it's something that you would avoid if you, unless you really had to. And they give you this story about, you know, all those turkeys in the city that, you know, that stag your stock when it goes on the market and all run home with a bag of money in their pocket. They tell you, markets will be a wonderful thing for you. You can always sell some of your shares. You know, what happens at the moment you do? Hello, Marcus is selling something wrong. That's right. And the share price goes down. Yep. So I fixed that I, some years ago now, about five years ago, I sold some shares to buy a boat. That's the love of my life, yep. outside of my wife, of course. And I said, I sold the shares. My, my uh, company secretary did the standard response for the stock exchange. You know, Mr. Blackmore has sold some shares, but he intends to be a long time term shareholder, you know, you see that all the time. I said, no, my shareholders, I think they have a right to know why Marcus is selling his shares. He's the biggest shareholder. What's he doing? And I and I respect that. It's about, you know, you have to respect your shareholders as much as you do your staff, I suppose. So I said, no, that's not good enough. I put in there, I'm selling my shares to buy a boat. Well, it got on the news in New York that night and it said, I was the chairman at the time, chairman of healthcare company sells shares to buy a boat. The caption at the bottom was, at least he's honest. And I can tell you, honesty is a very significant issue for me in the business. And, uh, you know, we got really good publicity out of it all. So how does the entrepreneur work with today's boards and all the corporate governance that they've got to oversee? In a word, painfully, I would suggest. I mean, it drives me nuts. You know what they told me at work the other day? Oh, Marcus, you've got to do another course on, you've got to do a course on bullying. I said, I did one last year. But nobody said, this is the problem with public companies. I reckon, I reckon public company boards spend 80% of the time protecting their own backside and not really contributing. What can we do? Where's this business going to be in five years and 10 years' time? Oh, we do that once a year. We'll have a strategy session. We should be thinking about those things all the time. But we're preoccupied and part of the reason is, and, I've, I've, you know, I, I, I love David Gonski. Oh, yep. You know, he's the director of everything sort of thing. But I talked to David about it. I said, our governance of public companies is wrong, David. I say to my directors, if I had my druthers, I'd get rid of the lot of you. And I would make the executive of the company the board. They're the people making the day-to-day decisions in the business. They're the people the shareholders should be holding responsible for the performance of the company, not the board. The board come in two or three days a week. I said, I'm in the office four or five days a week. I wouldn't have a clue what's going on in the business a lot of the time. So I think the system is wrong. So then the board, your board become an advisory board. And you know what? Then they don't have any responsibility. So they're worried about their responsibility. They're guarded in what they say. They're guarded in what they do. You know what David Gonski said to me, Marcus, I think you're right. 
He said, I've been talking about this for years. Now, that leads you down the path more the German system. That's right. You know, Germany hasn't done too badly. So, uh, you know, I'd love to change, but I, you know, I don't think I'm about to change the governance of public companies in Australia. So what happens? The shareholders hold the chairman of whatever it is, AMP or the Commonwealth Bank. Do you think for one minute the chairman of the Commonwealth Bank knew somebody 10 layers removed um, uh, uh, or AMP or something so that somebody down there is still selling and collecting money from insurance policy for somebody who died. He wouldn't have a clue. But who goes? The chairman. Oh, now we've got to find another chairman. You know, the, the system's wrong. Must be a pretty tough decision to leave then, Marcus. If someone well, walks up and says, I've I'm, I'm decided to move on from Blackmores. I'm still going to hang around. I said to the shareholders, the AGM, that I won't be an executive director. I mean, I'll just be a non-executive director. But I will also be the titular head of the Blackmores Research Institute. And I said, for those of you here today that uh, don't know what the word titular means, I looked up the definition in the dictionary before I came. And I said, it means something, I can't remember the exact words, but it means something like having all the trappings of office and none of the responsibility. And I said, that suits me fine. And that's where I'm headed in life because I, you know, I think I can still make a contribution. Um, but there's other things in my life too. You know, I've got a wonderful wife. I want to, you know, I've got a new boat coming, I've got another new boat coming. And my wife's been building a new house for the last two years. And, you know, I had my 75th birthday the other day. I'm, I'm this getting old. It's got nothing going for it, not a thing. So I've got to make sure that I, I jam a lot in between now and when I end up in the box. Can I ask you, you do a lot of international traveling? Not at the moment, I can tell you. No, not right now, but but previously. Marcus, where, where are we sitting as a nation in, re, in regards to accepting new technologies? You talk customer service and experience. But what, what are you seeing? You go, to, you go to China regularly. You go to Asia regularly. You've been to the US. You've got Europe. You're going to India. What are you seeing out there compared to what we're seeing? I think most of them are miles ahead of us. You know, we rate, I think we've improved, but we've rated poorly in productivity around the world. For a country like ours, which is vibrant and you know, we've got all these resources and things. Yeah. I think we should be doing better. Um, I was fascinated when I first started going to China because it's a communist country. I got bought up and thought, all oh, communists should be in jail or something. So I went to China and I, I belong to an international business organisation, a number of Chinese guys in there, seriously wealthy. You know, they sell more Rolls Royces in China than anywhere else. How's that? They're supposed to be communists. They're not supposed to have any money. They're supposed to share. They're supposed to be socialists at best. That's right, yeah. How come they got all this money? How come I see all these cranes? How come they're building all these buildings? Some, you know, this is not how I was brought up. So I have, a, I have a great respect for what they've done with that country. I think they've done a hell of a lot better job than what Russia did coming out of a, a purely socialist or communist sort of country. And they, you know, as Xi Jinping talks about uh, socialism with Chinese characteristics, I think that means that some people can sort of be capitalists there if they, if they want to be. I had a wonderful woman working for me, Christine Holgate, who now runs Australia Post. And uh, Christine was a bit of a socialist and I'm a bit of a capitalist. So she used to call me a capitalist with socialistic tendencies and I called her a socialist with capitalistic tendencies. And a lot of those socialists do have capitalistic tendency. 
So I think there's some wonderful lessons to be learned from the rest of the world. Um, I think I, I, I think we can do a better job, but we've got to get government off our back. You know, in our industry, we are in the supplement business. Australia has more regulations and stricter regulations than just about any country in the world. And I don't think it's warranted. You know, people don't die from tag. We did a we did a research project, had the regulator involved. How many people in Australia die from taking complementary medicines? Because surely that's the ultimate criteria. None. None. Not one. Yes, there have been deaths reported, but as the TGA said, they investigate every death and they could not find a causal relationship between any of those deaths and the taking of complementary medicine. That doesn't mean to say they're perfectly safe. You can take too many of herbs and things like that. But then on the other hand, if you get the critics around the place and they say herbal medicine doesn't work, I said, listen, we've got this really good product. just happens to be a laxative. I want you to take <laughs> three of these tonight and tell me that herbal medicine doesn't work tomorrow morning. Of course it works. Do you get government listening to you or is it just hard yards? It's been hard yards certainly for my father and certainly for me. It's getting better, but it's still, it's, it's still hard yards. I think what we're seeing, one of the outcomes of COVID-19 was a greater degree of credibility about taking supplements because all of a sudden all our immunity products yeah. took off. That's right. You know, we've got a product called Armour Force. I mean, it, it grew. You've never seen an ad for Armour Force, ever. That comes about because we detail doctors, integrative medicine practitioners and naturopaths about the value of that product. And it's largely a prescribed product. It's amazing. I take it all the time. So what happens? COVID-19, we run out of stock. So they, I know they said at work, oh, well, let's find another source of supply. I said, you're kidding yourself up a gum tree. It's a Ayurvedic Indian herb. So if you want to upscale your production of armour force, you've got to grow the herb first. It's not going to happen overnight. We're now, we're really well back in stock now, but we're out of stock for quite a while. Are we investing enough in the complementary no, and natural medicines? No, we, uh, we have a great deficiency of research in the complementary medicine space. Part of the reason, if you compare us to the pharma industry, yes. Remember the pharma industry only started in 1940 with the discovery of cortisone and the wider use of antibiotics. Before that, they all used herbs and things like that. So, but then they are so smart, those blokes, they convinced the governments of the world to give them a 20-year patentability on their product that they've just invented. Now, part of the reason was they invented a new chemical entity that had never existed on the planet before, so it's quite easy to patent. Only last month did Minister Hunt put legislation in the parliament, and I think he's been our best minister, did he put legislation in the parliament, we can now get five years of protection on a claim if we do the research that justifies what might be called a higher level claim. So I think we're seeing an easing of those things. Now, I only found out Scotland has now told their people to take vitamin D 
to build their immunity. Uh, Great Britain, England has done it, the National Health Scheme. Take vitamin E to build your immunity. The Philippines government has said we want all our primary school kids to get 200 milligrams of vitamin C a day to build up their immunity. Egypt have done the same thing. Canada's looking at it. Australia's not yet, but hopefully it will. So we're seeing a whole new credibility in the world for natural medicine and taking supplements. And remember, most of the world's population maintain their health with natural medicine, not with drugs. So surely that's an enormous opportunity for you. We are the medicine of the future. There's no risk. Marcus, can I ask you something else? Spare time. You're a mad or a very keen sailor from what we understand. What's the passion all about? I don't know. I started when I was a kid, I suppose. I, I just love being on the water. I, I enjoy the, the competitive nature of sailing. I also enjoy the cruising part. I've cruised in a number of places around, spent a lot of time in the Pacific. I don't know whether it's my features or whatever it is or whether I might have given them a few bucks to build a new toilet or something. But they all call me brother. They think I've – I think my wife thinks I've got uh, a bit of black blood in me somewhere too. But uh, I just love spending time in in uh, that part of the world in the, from a cruising point of view. My wife is passionate about going to their churches in – you know, in Tonga or Fiji or whatever, because they sing so beautifully. I tell you a story. We're in the Lao group. The Lao group is part of Fiji. The Lao people didn't want anybody, didn't want any tourism. Fiji's only allowed you to visit the Lao group in the last few years. So I wanted to go there. So we befriended an island there called Falanga. First time I went there, the kids had a problem. The toilets all broke down in the school. So we gave them five grand to fix up the toilets, went back. I mean, the uh, workmanship was a bit average, but at least the kids could have a decent toilet. The next time we went back, we helped them build a, uh, uh, a community centre, but we called it a evacuation centre because they get cyclones and things. And by calling it an evacuation centre, which, which was also its purpose, the Fiji government gave us a bit of money. So I went to, went to a church, not in that island, went to another church with Caroline, and I'm a bit deaf, you know, and the, the minister, he's talking double Dutch. I can't understand what he's talking about anyway. And she, she's needling me. She said, he wants to know whether you want to go and say something. You know, I mean, hang on, wait a minute, I'm just sitting there enjoying the <laughs> So what am I going to do? From the time I started to think about it, from the time I walked out of my seat up to where the altar was, right? And then I turned around and I said to the congregation, I said, you know, you people really disappoint me. And, uh, oh, what's this bloke on about? <laughs> I said, you, I've spent my life, you know, working hard. And I said to you before, I'm la- basically lazy. But I was doing something that I love doing, so it wasn't hard work. I've spent my life working hard and, I, and I'm buying a bigger house. I'm buying a faster car, I'm buying another boat with a genuine belief that I do those things, I'm going to be happier. So when I come up in these islands and I sit down with you people, you have very little material things. But the thing that disappoints me most is you're all happy. (laughs) You're all laughing, you're all happy. There's there's something wrong. And I think one one of the reasons I like going to Asia, it's a sort of a bit of a 
bit of a leveller. And you start to think about that. And when you think about your staff, just make them happy. Get them a swim. I've had people walking, how can you possibly afford a swimming pool and that for your staff? Cost chicken shit in comparison to what it costs you to employ people. It's really, the rules are so simple, so simple. Just make people happy. They're going to be more productive. And you know what happens? When they work harder and they're happier, I get richer. Marcus, what's, what's your supplement routine? Oh, it's horrible. I probably take at least 20 or 30 tablets or capsules a day. I've had my own health problems. Uh, the stress got to me last year. I've always had a funny feeling about stress. You know, we've got products for stress and I designed the first stress product and I sat down with another naturopath. I said, what can we put in this tablet that's going to make it work? And my father spent his life studying minerals and we came with needs, needs magnesium and potassium. So we put a double dose of those things there. That product is one of our most successful products. Yes, it's got a bit of B-complex in there and it's got some herbs, but it's the minerals that make it work. So um, stress is a relatively new disease, as mm. it were. Mm. So it wasn't till last year when I saw what was happening with my staff in the business that I really suffered from stress. It's, um, you know, it was just soul-destroying for me. We had five different reports that either management or the board largely didn't take a lot of notice of. Two from a Harvard business professor. You know, we, we've done reports on the culture and the place wasn't good. And it was I was just sitting there watching this sort of going on before my eyes and it destroyed me. Now, since when Alistair came on board, he got all those reports and he read them and he's changed the way we do things. So like Willie Nelson, we're back on the road again. <laughs> Thank heavens. But it was a tough time. So I, you know, I take a lot of magnesium, potassium, vitamin C. I take St. John's wort for, for anxiety. Fish oil. I give the I take fish oil. I give the dogs fish oil. Whatever, you know. We are, we are the medicine of the future. And it's it's about controlling our own health. It's about having the responsibility for our own health. Do I need to take all those things? You know, half the time is I don't know which ones I should or shouldn't take, so I take the lot. But how do we learn this, Marcus? Because the old days, those guys were seen on quacks to a point, right? Or naturopaths, you've got to be kidding. Yeah, go to a naturopath. That's the best thing. Or go to an integrative medicine practitioner like I do. They'll soon teach you. That's it's You know, you can be self-taught. There's plenty of books and things around the place. But you know who has – it's the women, not the men. But men are bloody hopeless. You know, they cut themselves and wait till it gets infected before they do anything about it. Not the women. Women look after the family's health. The best thing is probably go home and ask your wife what you should take. Oh, my mates say to me, Marcus, I'm taking all of that rubbish you sell. I said, what do you take? Because I wouldn't have a clue. I said, my wife puts it on the kitchen table in the morning. I don't want to create a problem, so I just take it. So I suggest you go home and ask your wife. You might be – I can tell you some women know more about nutrition than the average doctor because what happens in our medical schools, they learn next to nothing about nutrition. Few hours, nothing. Is that, is that right? It's changing. They're dealing with patients. Patient comes in, oh, I've been taking that St. John's ward. Now, we've got – there's plenty of clinical trials 
to demonstrate that St John's wort for mild depression, for anxiety, works as well as the drug Prozac, if not better, and doesn't have the side effects. Is it a better option? Of course it is, in my view. But the problem is, if I go and get a doctor to prescribe the Prozac, I just hoot up to the pharmacy and it costs me next to nothing. But if you want to buy Blackmore's St John's Ward, it'll cost you. And then you'll have to pay the GST on it. So at some stage down the track, we've got to level that out so that the options are easier for people to, to decide so their choice can be better. Marcus, if you were to take the time and give some advice to that young bloke working with his father on the skin creams many years ago, what advice would you give Marcus then? I tell him, find something in life that you really love doing. If you can't find anything, do something. Because one thing in life, it's you've got a hell of a long way to go and you can always change. And they are the exact words that I've given to my son and to my stepdaughter. She started off, you know, a bit of pressure, go and do business course at UTS, you know, and she wasn't enjoying it. I said, Imi, do something different. Her mother was went to UTS many, many years ago and did fashion. Imi loves fashion. She's now... Funny enough, work at Alexandria doing fashion, representing companies overseas that aren't big enough to have their own distribution capability in Australia. And she's doing that and she loves it. I think she was in the office by six o'clock this morning. Marcus, on that, I can't ask for any more. Thank you very much for making the time to join us today. I hope it's some value. Thank you so much. It's been terrific. You've been listening to No Limitations. Mm-hmm.